When the lights come up and the lights go down, I think that means we're beginning. Thank you for coming this evening. Friday evening is not an easy evening for people to turn up, but it's a testament to the passion and the contributions of our speaker ambassador, Stephen Rapp, um, that you are here. And so thank you for coming, but really a very sincere thank you to Ambassador Rapp. This talk um, this evening is sponsored by the Center for the International Politics of Conflict, Rights, and Justice here at SOAS in the Politics Department, and also by the London Transitional Justice Network, and many of our members of the network are actually here this evening, so thank you for coming. Um, for those of you who work in the world of international criminal justice, whether as scholars, uh, practitioners of one form or another, or just thinkers, in the broader sense, um, Stephen Rapp will be very well known to you, so I will keep my introduction short, but I will nonetheless just remind ourselves of some of his formal contributions. It's harder to capture in an introduction the level of passion and commitment that he has had to this field, and it really is uh, quite extraordinary. If you want to get a sense of it, just Google, and you can see the level of engagement. It's, it's, not, a great, it's not a great way to do it, but it gives you some sense. Um, from 2001 to 2007, uh, Stephen was Chief of Prosecutions at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. A couple of the people that he worked with turned up tonight. I have a feeling he hadn't seen them for a little while, so that was very, very good to see. Uh, he then was Chief Prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, where he was responsible, responsible for the, leading the prosecution of former Liberian President Charles Taylor. I'm sure we'll have some conversation about that. Uh, beginning in 2009, uh, Stephen became ambassador-at-large for war crimes and headed the Office of Global Criminal Justice at the U.S. Department of State. And this is a role that he's only very recently just finished, and I think we are sort of maybe one of the... I, I would like to say we're one of the... We are the first people, uh, institution to get him to speak, but it's just not true, because even if we had been, there were sort of 30 that got in front of us uh, even since we issued the invitation. In fact... The plane arrangements had to be redone because he thought he was coming to London, but then he had to come earlier and then fly back and fly. So I think that that is something that any of you who have worked with him understand, that he makes the effort to turn up and, and to really engage on this issue. And, and it's an issue, I think, in which turning up really is incredibly important. Um, I just also wanted to mention that prior to joining the world of international criminal justice, uh, Stephen had a very long and distinguished career Within the United States, he was U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Iowa from 1993 to 2001, where he worked on issues of violence against women. And prior to that, he was Staff Director of the United States Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Juvenile Delinquency. So his, his work has not only been in the international arena, but also in the domestic arena. Thank you so much for coming to SOAS. It's a tremendous honor, and we look forward to your remarks this evening. Thank you. Well, thank you, thank you very much, Leslie, for, for that introduction, and, and thank you all for coming out on a, on a nice uh, Friday, Friday evening. Uh, but the topic I think that we arrived at was the future of, of international criminal justice, and, uh, and those of us that have been engaged in, in this project, and I, I've met several of them uh, here in this room, uh, uh, know that uh, it, it's a challenging future, but uh, my thesis will be that... Uh, that, that international criminal justice, uh, even despite all the challenges, is very resilient, and that what's been established in the last seven decades uh, will live on, 
and, and succeed in, in doing what, uh, what victims and others uh, expect of it. Uh, before, uh, before going to talk about the future, I think it's, it's important to take a few moments to talk about the past because so much of what could happen in the future depends on the foundations that were laid and, and really the, the, um, the, the high expectations that have been raised um, by, by this project uh, since its beginning. And, and I really have to begin because I'm, I'm here in London um, with, uh, with the London conference where, where it really all did begin 70 years ago uh, this summer at, at Churchill, in, in, at Church House in, in, in Westminster. And, and I know that there are many of you that are, that are deeply steeped in, in this history and that have been involved in these tribunals and others that are not. So what I, what I say may be repetitive to, to some of you, but, but it's important, I think, for all of us to remember how this project arose. And, and, it, and of course, it, it came from the horrendous violence of the, of the German Nazi regime in World War II which enslaved and murdered millions of civilians and non-combatants in, in countries that it had conquered and, and occupied. And that well before the end of the war, the nations that united to defeat Germany decided that for once, the leaders of this enemy state and of its society would be held individually responsible for this violence and face justice for their crimes. It was at Church House beginning at the end of June of, of 45 when the negotiations began and it was really a hard slog to bring together Russians and Brits and Americans and, and the French to negotiate a way in which these leaders could be tried. Eventually in early August they approved a charter or statute that held that the leaders of states could be convicted for acts undertaken by forces under their control. They could be prosecuted for violations of the laws of war established by international conventions and customs, but also for the first time in history for, for crimes against humanity. Violent acts such as murder and enslavement committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population, suggesting that leaders held a duty to all humanity beyond that that was set forth in the statutes and agreements that had been made by states. Of course, it was a radical change from the system of state sovereignty based on the Peace of Westphalia, under which there was no right to judge the leader of another country. And historically, leaders of countries had not needed to worry about facing justice, certainly from others, for committing crimes against their own people or, or anyone else. They could kill tens of thousands and at best expect to die in their beds, in their palaces or mansions, or at worst in a villa or other resort and comfortable exile. And even when they violated international treaties or committed horrible crimes against occupied peoples, their borders might be adjusted, but as long as their own domestic systems allowed them to continue to rule, they'd generally not be disturbed by their former enemies. At Nuremberg, beginning in November of 45, the great trial occurred of the senior Nazi leaders, and eventually in October, or Jan the end of September, and the first of October of 1946, 18 were convicted and three were acquitted. There followed 12 subsequent trials at Nuremberg of leadership groups, from the doctors to the diplomats and from the industrialists who manufactured the arms and lethal agents to the commanders of forces like the Einsatzgruppen, who used them to deliver death to, to millions. Earlier this evening I was talking to someone who 
It was, uh, had followed the work of the UN War Crimes Commission established during the war, which authorized the victorious allies to hold trials uh, in each of the, their countries. And indeed, uh, it's not just Nuremberg, but indeed there were thousands of trials held based upon the kind of law that was established here at London. But as we all know, with the advent of the Cold War, the accord necessary for international trials came to an end. That's not to say there were no atrocities, atrocities certainly on both sides of the Cold War, but the leaders who were responsible, even after they were overthrown, did not face justice, but instead found safe havens, with Idi Amin of Uganda off to Saudi Arabia, Mengistu of Ethiopia to Zimbabwe, and the Shah of Iran eventually to Panama. It was only after 1990 and the end of the Cold War and following the massive targeting of civilians in the Civil War that broke out in the former Yugoslavia that it became possible to revive international justice. And it's important to remember, and, and of course those of us that deal with this think about it occasionally, but that the basis was an unprecedented use, really a creative reading of the UN Charter in Chapter 7. That chapter gave the Security Council authority to take all necessary steps to restore international peace and security and, and made its decisions taken under Chapter 7 binding upon all the 100 at that time 90 members of the, uh, of, of the United Nations. There was an absence of will to send in military and civilian forces with a mandate and means to protect the civilians in the former Yugoslavia and the idea and many viewed it as a poor substitute, was to deter the violations by sending in prosecutors and judges who would charge, who could charge, and, and maybe remove the worst alleged perpetrators temporarily until the end of their trials and more permanently if they were convicted. And so in 93, the UN Security Council established the, the Yugoslavia Tribunal, the ICTI. The following year, Similar court, the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, where I came to work in 2001. Later in the same decade, the first hybrid model was deployed, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, based on an agreement between the United Nations and the, and the government of Sierra Leone. But it's important to note that in this second period, the period that we're really in, of international criminal justice, it was very different than Nuremberg. Those trials had been conducted by forces of, of occupation. They had all the powers, and frankly then some, of a state to arrest, to investigate, I should say investigate first, investigate, arrest, and try individuals and to enforce their judgments. The post-Cold War tribunals required cooperations of states. And of course, as I said, under Chapter 7, their, their, their resolutions of the UN Security Council were mandatory. And this, in a way, it resolved some issues of legality. Uh, Monist states, uh, the states that um, implement international law automatically in their, in their domestic systems, countries like the Netherlands, uh, read any UN resolution right into, the, uh, uh, right into their domestic statutes. That's why they asked us to pass a resolution for the Charles Taylor trial in, in 2006 because uh, it was a whole lot easier for it to be imposed on them through a UN Security Council resolution than to try to write a statute and pass it through the Dutch Parliament. So for countries that want to comply, this can be extremely useful. But for those who don't want to comply, 
The question was, what did it mean that it was mandatory? What, what means did the Security Council, and what will did the Security Council have to, uh, uh, to, to enforce uh, the orders of these courts? Uh, we know in the UN, and we see it always, uh, that occasionally, on, on a multilateral basis, the UN Security Council finally, they haven't done it in Syria, but they've done it in places like Liberia and, and Sudan and, and, and elsewhere, um, have established uh, sanctions regimes. But um, even when they establish them, actually implementing them against the, the key persons with the power, and then making those sanctions effective is very difficult. And, and though there are examples, like the sanctions used uh, uh, concerning um, the development of nuclear weapons by Iran, where eventually there was success, and sanctions as to apartheid South Africa, uh, there are a lot, many other cases where, where sanctions either weren't employed or when they were employed, were defied for decades. What international justice in the modern area required was for states, and particularly the powerful states, to go the extra mile to make it work. It wouldn't just work because there was a statute. It wouldn't just work because you sent uh, uh, good people or earnest people or hardworking people uh, to, to an international tribunal. They had to help with the investigations. They had to share the information. And then, when indictments were eventually issued and arrest warrants were, were ordered by the judges, they would have to use their influence, their own carrots and sticks, in their bilateral relationships with the recalcitrant states or uh, through pressure that they might bring through, through multilateral institutions. And of course, as we know, with the Yugoslavia Tribunal, uh, in the 90s, the expectations uh, were low. There were times when the war criminals like Mladic and Karadzic seemed to be able to pass through Bosnia without even being disturbed by peacekeepers. And it was slow going. But eventually, by 2011, the Yugoslavia Tribunal was able to gain the arrest and appearance of all 161 people that it charged a record unparalleled in the annals of criminal justice. Lastly mentioned, I've been U.S. attorney in Northern Iowa, not a, not a place noted for a lot of crime, though I was good at finding it. Uh, but I certainly, uh, over time, prosecuted many times more than 161, but no group of other 161 did I ever succeed in actually bringing to court. They would always manage to flee somewhere where, where we couldn't find them or, or bring them back. Uh, the Rwanda and Sierra Leone trials, uh, tribunals charged fewer, but brought almost all of them to court. And each of them, in the principle that was established at Nuremberg, as I said, that leaders could be held responsible. As Justice Jackson said, uh, the common sense of mankind requires that the law shouldn't stop with petty crimes by little people. It has to reach those men who possess themselves of great power and use, make deliberate and concerted use of it to to set in motion evils which touch every home. Uh, know that I use that expression often because I believe it so strongly, but these courts did that. Uh, unlike national courts, national court martials and the military systems, national civilian systems which generally hold lower level miscreants uh, and, and don't reach for the top. Um, the ICTR, convicted a prime minister, John Kambanda, who'd headed the extremist government that implemented the genocide of, 
of that crime of crimes, and he's now serving life in Mali. Uh, European president Slobodan Milosevic of, of Serbia tragically died just before the end of his four-year trial at the ICTY, and, and Charles Taylor of Liberia, a case that I was directly involved with, was convicted of crimes against humanity and, and war crimes, all 11 counts, though not all of the specific charges in the indictment, at the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and is now serving under an agreement with the court his sentence of 50 years here in the United Kingdom at Franklin Prison near Durham. Of course, the challenge of establishing separate courts for specific situations led many countries to push for the creation of a permanent international court that could have global jurisdiction to try cases of genocide, war crimes, or crimes against humanity in situations where domestic justice systems did not have the will or capacity to do so. And in 98, the nations of the world drafted the Rome Statute which came into effect in the 60th, when the 60th ratification was obtained in 2002. And by this year, the International Criminal Court has 123 member states, with all of South America, all of the European Union, and most of the European continent in it, most of Sub-Saharan Africa in it. But significantly, 72 countries, UN member states, including my own, the United States of America, Russia, China, and most of Asia and North Africa out of it. So that's the, that's where, that's the past. Where are we today? Well today, this international justice project that began at Nuremberg and was revived and with the former Yugoslavia faces, I think, uh, unprecedented challenges. First, to, to the ICC itself. In, of course, really only it was stood up in 2003 and began its, its first charges and, and charged its first uh, accused in 2005. So um, a little better than 10 years of active operations. So far completed three trials, two of them with convictions. Recently had, of course, it's more than, it's a little longer ago than recent, uh, about a year ago, the withdrawal of the charges against President Uhuru Kenyatta of Kenya based on alleged conduct before he was president, um, while the case against his deputy president, um, William Ruto, continues. And there are famous fugitives that have remained at large for a long period of time. Joseph Kony for 10 years, Omar Bashir since the arrest warrant was issued a little better than six years, Sivest Mutachimura of the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo only a couple years. But there are others as well. It's important to note, however, that unlike the Yugoslavia and Rwanda tribunals, uh, which were established as courts with primary jurisdiction, courts that could insist that every case uh, come to The Hague or come to Arusha, though eventually as they closed, uh, they were directed to send cases back and, and, and did some good work in that area. The ICC is a court of last resort. And basically that means that the primary responsibility for these cases that involves genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity needs to be done at the, at the national level because the ICC is only complementary, as the word goes, uh, of, uh, of those national systems. But frankly, there is no program uh, within the ICC, uh, within the donors to the ICC, to actually establish 
complementarity, to provide the specific capacity to do these crimes. That's not to say that various donors don't have programs to reinforce the rule of law, to strengthen judiciaries, to do a lot of other things. But those of us that have prosecuted these crimes and know the complexities, both factually and legally, that are involved and the difficulties of protecting witnesses and uh, uh, when, you, when you have people that are, that are testifying against powerful state actors or powerful and, and dangerous non-state actors, that this is, these are cases of a different kind and a different quality and that just reinforcing the rule of law doesn't establish what we call complementarity at the national level. And even if you did do the capacity, the fundamental problem is so often the question of will. Because even in those states that do want to prosecute, it may be to prosecute the last bunch, the group that committed some crimes, where the current regime committed at least as many, and, and aren't prepared to, to have an independent process. Certainly then the will is lacking to, to have what the ICC describes as a genuine process. Dealing with that challenge is also one in which few countries have, 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 have risen to the task. And then, of course, there's the impunity gap. ICC jurisdiction uh, extends, of course, to the citizens of its member states. That's 123 member states. If they commit a crime uh, on other uh, people's territory, that can go to the ICC. Uh, if crimes are committed on their territory, even by others, it can be dealt with at the ICC. Beyond that, you, the UN Security Council, in much the same way as it established the ICTY and ICTR, can send cases to the court. And it's done that twice, in Sudan Darfur in 2005 and in Libya in 2011. Of course, even in those situations, the ICC has been unable to obtain the cooperation of the subject governments. The real, co I mean, cooperation on paper in Libya, no cooperation in, in Sudan, and bring the individuals it is indicted into custody. And of course, those are cases where it was possible for the ICC to issue arrest warrants. And, and, and we know, most famously in Syria, that despite an, an effort and, and eventually the support of 13 members of the UN Security Council, including the US and all the non-aligned states, uh, China and Russia vetoed the resolution and made it impossible for that case to go to the ICC. And for those that don't follow international justice, the question always arises, why is it dealing with cases involving uh, 1,300 people killed in post-election violence in, in Kenya and not 200,000 in, in, in Syria? And there's a clear legal answer, but that's not an answer that suggests that justice is even that the victims in both places count for as much in the eyes of the international community. And then, of course, there are the ungoverned spaces. And uh, that's not to say that there haven't been action already by the ICC in ungoverned spaces, and that, uh, and that the idea of prosecuting non-state actors is something we did at the, at the International, um, at the Special Court for Sierra Leone. Uh, and, and certainly the ICC in, in going first after the Lord's Resistance Army and in dealing with the leaders of armed groups in the Democratic Republic of Congo has dealt with prosecuting people that are out there in the field committing 
allegedly horrible crimes against the civilian population, but surrounded by their own armed men and, and frankly, very difficult to prosecute, very difficult to, uh, to evidence can be developed, uh, uh, cases can be brought, arrest warrants can be issued, but bringing them into custody is, is, is a challenge. And of course, the ICC approach to bringing them into custody in the absence of even the kind of tracking team that we had at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda is to send a request to the Attorney General of the state in which they're operating and saying, would you please go get them? Uh, obviously, in states like the Central African Republic, where the writ of the government doesn't run much beyond the city limits of the capital, that's, uh, that's unrealistic to expect uh, much action. And of course, it's not just those armed groups, but now the Islamic State and other jihadist groups which are threatening and killing civilians and attacking their communities and their, and their cultures from Timbuktu to, to Crete uh, that also are out there defying international justice and, and, and can this project have an impact on them. And then, of course, there's the active opposition <laughs> to this project by, by, by some countries. And I'll be glad to answer questions about my own country's engagement. But uh, um, I think, frankly, we support this project in, in, in every way that, that we can in, in, in our system. But, uh, but there are countries now that at one time gave it lip service that now really have turned against it. And, and, uh, and one can see in the Chinese government a rising economic power, though not rising as fast as a few years ago, but, but still now, particularly under its current president, uh, actively opposing human rights, suppressing human rights in its own country, and, and opposing uh, its implementation abroad, and certainly uh, the idea that um, aid or assistance should be conditioned upon countries' uh, compliance with, with human rights standards or compliance with international justice is, is, is something um, actively opposed uh, by the Chinese. And then there's the challenge to legitimacy. Um, of course, beginning with the Bashir case, but resounding more loudly after, the Ruto, after Ruto and, and Kenyatta were elected president and deputy president of Kenya, the argument that justice is so selective it's not real, that there are double standards, the cases are only brought in Africa. And even our U.S. engagement, the um, countering LRA, deploying forces with regional militaries to substantially uh, weaken the LRA and make it much less a threat to the countries in the region, and eventually to bring one of its fugitives to justice, the expansion of our rewards program to ICC cases beyond the Yugoslavia and Rwanda court, our intense diplomatic and political engagement to support the court uh, is viewed positively, but also awakens the question, is the court using the United States for the United States' own ends? And, and isn't it inappropriate for the United States to be a partner of a court when it doesn't apply, arguably, obviously the ICC statute directly to itself? Well, those are the challenges. Like I'm in a debate here, obviously I'm almost convinced of the negative, but, but frankly there is a positive. And, and frankly what you see is that it is more effective, much more effective, than you would expect it to be. 
No one wants to be in its crosshairs. In 2014, the Kenyan election was the first without violence in a quarter century, as the loser in a close contest decided not to unleash the militants of his party. After being declared the loser by a fraction of 1% of the vote. Rwanda, not an ICC member, but subject to its jurisdiction for crimes in the Congo, curtailed its support of a proxy militia in the Congo in 2013 and 2014. The president of Burkina Faso in 2014 was seeking to extend uh, 28 years of rule, decided to uh, relinquish power and leave the country rather than shoot down demonstrators in the street and perhaps making himself an internationally wanted man. And we see recently, uh, even in the case of a powerful unarmed, a powerful non-state actor, the ICC moving to prosecute uh, a leader of Ansar al-Din uh, for the crimes committed against the cultural objects, the tombs, the scrolls of, of, of Timbuktu. I mentioned the arrest of an LRA fugitive, um, large resistance army fugitive, uh, Deputy Commander Dominic Unglin, who surrendered to U.S. forces in January of 2015 and who we worked to send to, to the court. But that particular arrest and transfer would not have happened without the strong support of all of the African countries uh, in that operation, and particularly of, of the president, the interim president of the Central African Republic who insisted that, that he go to the ICC because she has a case, she's asked the ICC to come back, uh, and she's counting on it to be able to, uh, to bring some deterrence to the horrible acts by groups like the Celica and the Antibalica that have torn her country apart and have victimized so many by sending a signal that these individuals will face justice. She's also supported the creation of a, uh, of, a, of a CAR special court, Central African Republic special penal court that will have international judges and, and, and investigators and, and prosecutors uh, among, its, among its personnel. And that's just the ICC. There's the broader story about what's happening with this, with this project that suggests its, its resilience. I was in uh, recently in, in Senegal for the opening of the trial of, of Hissan Habre, a dictator in Chad, a dictator for, for six years, uh, implicated in the torture and murder of thousands of his, uh, of his people, supported, as one recalls, by the U.S. government at the time as a, as a proxy against uh, Gaddafi, who was attempting to expand his control into the Sahel. But uh, that trial has begun in an, in an African court, a Senegalese court, by reason of the fact that that's the country he's in, but with support of the African Union and with a, a special creation of an extraordinary chamber with uh, at least a presiding non-Senegalese judge at trial and appeal in order to give it the ability to implement uh, international law. That's, in a way, an extraterritorial case. Uh, someone committing crimes elsewhere being tried in a, in, in a third country where they've come to live. And, and here in Europe uh, and, and in North America, the, the actions of, uh, of, of other states in prosecuting cases extraterritorially, particularly where the perpetrators have come to, to live, 
where they've claimed to be refugees, but in fact have been found to be the, the butchers, identified by their, by their victims, those prosecutions have now resulted in convictions in some nine states for crimes committed elsewhere, for war crimes or crimes against humanity. The, uh, those, those same units are now looking at the situation in, in, in Syria. Last week, uh, Foreign Minister Laurent Fabius of, of France announced that my good friend Oriella DeVos, the, the war crimes chief prosecutor in France, had opened an investigation involving the Caesar file, the file of the, of the, um, of the defecting military photographer, whom I know quite well, who brought out more than 50,000 photos of, of more than 10,000 individuals that have been tortured in custody by the Syrian regime. We were not able to identify any French citizens among that group, but under the law of France, it's possible to begin a universal jurisdiction prosecution, or at least a universal jurisdiction investigation for those crimes. And similar interest is expressed by several other countries. And I visited in Germany yesterday with the federal prosecutor there that is looking at it under the, under the German law, which is uh, actually broader than the French one. Uh, I know in the past, universal jurisdiction of these kinds of cases has been controversial and certainly on the part of the U.S. government. Uh, but the basic objection has always been that states might get involved in them when they really don't have an interest at, at stake. And in Europe now, with facing tens of thousands of refugees, in the case of Germany, hundreds of thousands of refugees that are coming out of Syria and seeking admission, if you talk to those refugees, and I've talked to scores of them, the reason they're leaving, occasionally the crimes of, of Daesh or ISIS, but generally the crimes of the regime, the crimes that has caused people to, for, for no suspicion at all, but basically from where they live or their ethnicity to be tossed in jail and tortured to death or have barrel bombs with chlorine gas or earlier even worse agents dropped on their heads, have finally reached a situation where life is intolerable because of those crimes. And uh, if we're going to get to that problem, in Europe or elsewhere, prosecute the crimes. Prosecute crimes in Germany, in France, in the United Kingdom, in Sweden, in Canada. I would like to find a way in the United States uh, for crimes committed in, in, uh, in, in Syria, against Syrians, by Syrians, and put on the wanted posters, people of the quality of Mladic and Karadzic. Can't put the president on because it's a state prosecution. But the work has begun to move in, in that direction. And with high-level support, as, as indicated by the statement of the, of the French foreign minister. And then we have other situations where many thought at one time there was little prospect for justice. The case of Sri Lanka, where the war there against the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE, ended at the end of, in, in, in May of, of 2009, and where there were serious allegations of, of violations of the laws of war and in the killing of Tamil civilians and in the area of the conflict and then in the, in the killing of, of those that surrendered and that were non-combatants and were ordered to combat. I myself in my office was asked by our Congress three times to do reports on it. And thereafter, the United States, together with other countries, sponsored resolutions in the Human Rights Council in 2012 and 2013, asking the Sri Lankan government to do something about it in their national system. And here we had a country that 
a government led by um, the Roger Poxes that, uh, that basically refused to take action, refused to do a genuine process, appointed a, a lessons learned and reconciliation commission, and then in the end trashed most of the recommendations. So in 2014, we finally were successful in getting a resolution to establish a, uh, a formal inquiry by the United Nations High Commissioners. And many thought there was no chance of justice or any kind of accountability there. Uh, indeed, the idea of taking it to the UN Security Council and sending it to the ICC was never even seriously considered because of the strong support of China uh, for, the, for the government of Sri Lanka with whom it was beginning to have a, a preferential relationship. But then in this year of 2015, in two separate elections, one for the presidency and one for parliament, uh, uh, the voters decided to dismiss the Rajapaksas. And though, of course, we don't know what will follow precisely, but uh, looking at that situation, the desire of the public in that country to elect a, uh, a government that would end the international isolation, uh, that was open to accountability and reconciliation with the, the Tamil community, I think has, 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 has opened the door. In South Sudan, Horrendous crimes are being committed, and I have not a lot of optimism in that situation. But the recent peace agreement signed as part of the IGAD plus process includes the provision for a hybrid court with international judges sitting with South Sudanese judges. We know how difficult it will be to implement that peace agreement, and it's been defied uh, already uh, in the field. But it was actually impossible for the parties to negotiate a peace agreement in South Sudan without having a justice component. And we hear so often that justice complicates peace. How can you sit down and work out a deal that talks about prosecuting potentially leaders of the, of, of the warring factions? They'll never sign such a deal. But there's no way they can sign a deal that doesn't have it in it, in, particularly in the South Sudanese context. The, uh, the new air population that suffered enormously at the beginning of the conflict in December of 2013, that claimed that, that more than 10,000 newers in the capital Juba were hunted, hunted down in what they call essentially genocidal violence, targeted just because of their newer ethnicity, their association with um, Machar, who was, uh, who was alleged to have run a coup against the government. Um, they say the truth has to be established. There has to be a court. We won't join in a government that doesn't have uh, some provision for it. And we're seeing the durability of, of hybrid models. Uh, Kosovo on August 3rd finally adopted a statute to have a, a court created in the Netherlands uh, with international judges to investigate and, and prosecute the alleged mistreatment and war crimes against Serb victims at the end of the Kosovo intervention in 2000, or excuse me, in 1998, 99, and 2000. Efforts continuing at the national levels. In Guatemala, for instance, where we had, of course, the prosecution successfully of Rios Mont, and then that prosecution set aside. But the international engagement of the CSIG, the, the Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, even though it hasn't focused explicitly on the, on the human rights violations and the crimes of the, of the 1980s. 
It has largely targeted people that were associated with those crimes and the deep state actors that continue to condone the, 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 those violators and, and the way in which it, working with the national prosecutor, has successfully put together cases in the corruption area that have brought down the president and the vice president and led the, the leading candidate for president to actually come in third and not even to be part of the coming runoff suggest a, a sort of a dynamism to all of this when there's an international participation that, uh, that, um, that suggests that, there's a, that there is success in the future. So what are the lessons for the future? And what does all this tell us about what the prospect is? One, of course, it tells us, and, and those of us that have been in these international institutions know it so well, First and foremost, they have to do their jobs well. They have to find their evidence. They have to pre prepare their cases. They have to have at least twice the evidence that they might think is, is reasonably necessary. I think there's some indication that the ICC is moving more in that direction, and particularly with, with Fatou uh, and Suda and, and James Stewart as, as deputy prosecutor. It involves, even in places where we don't have courts today, developing the evidence supporting UN commissions, but more importantly, supporting the kind of independent efforts that, uh, that we've deployed in, in Syria, such as the Commission for International Justice and Accountability that brought out hundreds of thousands of pages of documents. And when you put it together with the Caesar evidence, gives a, uh, prosecutable cases, court-ready cases uh, that could be prosecuted today in, in, um, in third-party third states, uh, or extraterritorial cases under universal jurisdiction, or eventually in an international or Syrian court. And frankly, when you do have the evidence, it may not seem possible at the time, but the strength of the evidence is, for instance, in the Habre case. If there weren't the kind of evidence where he was actually writing on the, uh, writing on the book uh, uh, of orders to, uh, to the people in the intelligence service, don't let anybody out of this prison alive. If you get that kind of evidence, it becomes impossible not to, not to bring forth justice at some point in the future. There needs to be a flexibility of, of the models that are employed, not all the ICC, not all at the national level. And, and certainly, and, and I often find disagreement with my ICC friends on, on this, uh, uh, there are other ways in which internationals need to be able to participate. We've done hybrid courts, mixed courts where there's a national authority but internationals participating temporarily as in Bosnia or in the new court of, in, in, in CAR as an idea. What's done in the in the, in the CSIG, which was an international commission investigating with people from the region, with, familiar with the culture, developing the cases in partnership with national prosecutions, is, is another way. And of course, even at the national level, a real effort to, to establish complementarity, to, to really work with countries on developing the skills necessary to, um, to take on these cases. Essentially, though, it involves that all of us work with the civil society, uh, with the victims, with those that are affected by these crimes, because none of the situations that I've been involved in, and in the course of ambassadorship for global justice, traveling 1,200 days a year, every visit always meant meeting with civil society, meeting with victims, finding ways to empower them. 
And it's that demand, it's the expectations that they have, uh, that they have uh, uh, been raised by us, that they embrace, that I think gives us the real pressure in individual states and then across states uh, to, to find the, the, the way forward, uh, even in the most challenging places. And finally, it's important for us to confront the crisis of legitimacy. You know, you can never overcome the deniers, the people who would say there was no Holocaust, there was no Armenian genocide, there was no genocide in, in Rwanda. Or those that would shift the blame, those that would say, well, we object to these guys being prosecuted for killing hundreds of thousands because somebody else who prosecuted, who killed hundreds, aren't being prosecuted. Until you have a safe system, the thugs go free. It is important to look at situations outside Africa, and we see the prosecutor has now taken up the Georgian case. But it's, uh, it's not essential to show balance across all groups and on all regions. It's necessary to prosecute the cases with merit, those that, that need to come to the international level, and to work for other tools for those that can be done closer to home. And for the great powers, like my own, the United States of America, it's important to practice what we preach. Say that as well of the United Kingdom, which of course is part of the, of the ICC and a, and a leader, and, and I salute the way that the, the um, service prosecution system is investigating the Iraqi case. And, and in the end, I'm sure, will pursue every meritorious case and give no justification for the ICC prosecutor to, to take a case to the international level. And with the United States, with our culture and our two-thirds requirement of, to get conventions and treaties through the U.S. Senate, the difficulty we even have getting 51 votes in the Senate for anything reasonable, let alone 67, um, what we have to do is, is what we've done in other cases. In, in treaties in which we can't ratify, whether it's the law of the sea or the Convention on Disabilities or the Convention on the Rights of the Child, we need to meet or exceed those standards in our own practices. To have laws that track international criminal law, we have some. We need to have crimes against humanity in our statute. We need to have full command responsibility uh, provisions, which, which we don't have now. Need to have transparent investigations on cases like Kunduz or, or whatever that happens out there. My friends in the U.S. military are proud of what our system does with cases like Sergeant Bales, who killed 16 civilians in Afghanistan, sending way to life, or in the civilian system with the Blackwater Guards, who killed people in Missouri Square and in Baghdad in uh, 2007 and received sentences of from 30 years to life. But our basic practice in every country uh, needs to be to so investigate and, and so prosecute that uh, we would never give cause, whether we were inside or outside an international court, for, uh, for anyone to take a case of one of our citizens uh, to such a forum, because we would have prosecuted it ourselves. So I do think that this project is still surviving. It, uh, it is not easy to succeed, but I don't think there is an alternative 
on our planet when we have the, the worst crimes, when, when individuals, men, women, and children, are selected based on, on their identity or their perceived support for the other side, for, for murder, for rape, or for, for amputation. Uh, uh, they require our assistance, and, and it requires that, uh, that those of us in government, those in international institutions, and academic life do everything, and in, in our communities, do everything we can to, to find the path for justice. And, uh, and I think that path will, uh, will remain there and, and be available for years to come. So thank you very much and ready to take your questions. Thank you. Would you, thank you, that was, uh, I, I think you'll get a lot of questions, that was excellent. Um, would you like to remain standing and sure, I'll, sure, okay, so can we, is mean, it possible to get a little bit more light in the audience yeah, so that we can to, see who's, and can I, I when I you, I wasn't um, sure there was anybody out there. <laughs> uh, it's good, because you can't see any reactions when you're speaking, so it doesn't get in your way. Um, if you put your hand very high, if you make your if you state your question very clearly, but before you, if before you ask your question, if you could say your, oh, we're losing the light yeah. again. Yeah. Um, if I've you could say line. your name, if you could say your name and you know where you're affiliated. If you're not affiliated, please still ask questions. It just you know, I once said you must say your name and affiliation, and and three terrific people in the audience. Uh, told me later they didn't ask a question because they didn't want to have to say their affiliation. So don't don't be don't be shy. But we would love to know where you're from. So let me. Uh, okay, we'll start back here with the gentleman um, in the blue shirt. Thank you very much. My name is Nils Hahn. I was affiliated with SOAS in the past and also at World Learning a School of International Training in Washington D.C. I have a question regarding the concept of, from the Nuremberg about taking a consenting part, the TCP concept. What's this? The TCP was that people who were in knowledge of crimes against humanity but remained silent and did not, uh, even though if they were in positions of power where they could react but chose not to, um, could be convicted for taking a consenting part in the war crimes. And this concept has been very interesting. Um, I've done research for many years on the uh, Liberian conflict um, and in Liberia, when I was there during the war, or during two years, it was very clear that uh, the United States government was strongly involved in that war. And uh, recently, last year, the U.S. Uh, military published an article with the U.S. cohort operations in Liberia from 1970s to 2003, where it's clearly outlined how they removed free governments from power and were strongly involved in backing rebel groups uh, leading to major uh, war crimes in Liberia. Now this leads me on to the question that there's been a significant silence about this uh, involvement of the US government and would you consider that journalists, academics and also prosecutors who ignores or marginalize the role of the US government in this war can be considered as taking a consenting part in the war crimes. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, let me go ahead and, and collect more questions, but let me just answer it specifically. And I know uh, the, the sort of concepts that have come to us uh, in, in international law, uh, and, and as I described, the sort of uh, command responsibility sort of role that if one has, and I'm just talking about international law as it, as it stands, 
and, and, and recognizing uh, how difficult uh, the, the world is in, in terms of, of dealing with lesser evils and in, in, in conflicts and, and trying to figure out what can be done to, uh, to protect people, uh, uh, which often involves one in, uh, in, for a period of time, giving some support to regimes while continuing to press uh, for democratic openings and for changes and, and, and other things. Uh, um, it, it can become a, a very morally complicating situation, and, and all of us have to weigh those factors uh, in, in every decision that, that we make in our lives, and we weigh them now when we deal with situations in Syria. And it's one of the complications that, frankly, uh, causes uh, you know, my own country to be, be viewed now as, as, as insufficiently committed to the cause of the Syrian people because it hasn't uh, more robustly uh, assisted armed groups in, in Syria that would protect people against the crimes of the regime, uh, obviously uh, raising the issue about whether perhaps our standards for vetting people are, are too high and therefore we can't, uh, uh, we can't recruit enough actors in these situations to do any good. Uh, so these can be difficult questions in terms of policy and, and morality. Uh, I'm a prosecutor, and, and I deal with, with, with my understanding of, of the law, and, and that involves <laughs> uh, determining those cases that, that can be prosecuted and those that can't, and, and, and counseling uh, anybody who's an official uh, on how to avoid walking into, into those kinds of situations. Uh, and uh, when you talk of Nuremberg and, and, and responsibility, I mean, I don't recall cases in which uh, individuals that were uh, silent political actors uh, were, were prosecuted uh, for their crimes. Uh, to my knowledge, the law, and certainly the law that we take from Nuremberg under, under international customary principles now and have enacted in each of the tribunals, is one where if you have an effective control of a force, if you've got the ability to prevent or punish uh, the action of individuals that are committed, committing targeted acts against civilians, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and, and you fail uh, uh, having knowledge of those crimes or with good reason to know of those crimes to take such action, you can be held uh, complicit in them. And of course, uh, uh, that would seem to be a quite powerful law that would allow us quite often to take, uh, take uh, the cases of, of, of crimes committed in the field uh, to a high level, frankly, it's not so easy. And it's, in fact, not been easy to convict people under it because uh, uh, quite often the, the individuals committing the crimes are in irregular units. Uh, the information shared about what's happening uh, doesn't reach the high level. And, and also you have really a, a, a great difficulty in, in using that across borders. Uh, uh, we thought we had a strong case against Charles Taylor for command responsibility under the RUF. Uh, I remember finally getting the BBC broadcast uh, where he was, um, was it with, um, um, I can't remember the reporter that he was speaking with, but, uh, but Sam Bakary was on the radio on BBC World Service uh, a few days after the fall of Freetown in January of 99. And at one point, uh, and the reporter's asking him, and he's on his sat phone up country, and he's boasting about what they did in the taking of Freetown. And there was discussion about having a ceasefire. 
and would there be a ceasefire? And he said, well, I had to talk to Charles Taylor. And I said, chief, should we have a ceasefire? What can we do? And so we thought we had some indication that this, this RUF had actually acknowledged that Charles Taylor was their chief. And uh, judges didn't find that was sufficient. That was just a term, an honorific term. And even though, in our view, he pulled a lot of strings, we couldn't convict him of that. And, and uh, we, ended, we ended up convicting him, aiding and abetting uh, specifically those operations with substantial aid, knowing that that aid uh, would contribute to the commission of the crimes under, under a standard that uh, is, was to some extent disputed between ourselves and the Yugoslavia Tribunal, but I think has now been, been settled. But uh, under the aiding and abetting standard, it still requires uh, uh, substantial knowledge and substantial effect, and at least in the Sierra Leone context, that the aid actually enabled the crimes. Uh, there were people that said that we should have prosecuted Gaddafi or Blaise Gampori, that Burkina Faso leader that I mentioned earlier for the crimes, and frankly we found that that was too far afield uh, connecting that. So uh, connecting U.S. action and in, in supporting uh, uh, Doe uh, uh, when he had an election and, and, and won it and uh, we're trying to maintain stability in the country and even while we're you know, not doing, I'm sure, uh, policies that I would like, I, I think would be would be fundamentally impossible. So you know the the question is 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 holding yourself to the to the same kind of standards that you hold others to. And uh, as as I indicated, uh, I mean I've recently been in the press talking about the Russian responsibility for the crimes of Assad and the dangers that they might find themselves in. Um, you know it's it's debatable whether Putin has crossed the line yet. Uh, even though, of course, he's, he's keeping Assad uh, in, in power. I don't think he's probably crossed that line yet. I need to see uh, specific action made that, uh, that affected, that was, that was key to operations that barrel bombed civilians, that were targeting civilian neighborhoods, et cetera, uh, joint commands, other things like that, that I think would be necessary to hold people responsible. I don't think we're there. On the other hand, from our American standpoint, uh, uh, in part because of the concern uh, in the Cold War of us supporting bad actors in Latin America. Senator Leahy was successful in 98 in getting this law passed that essentially prohibits the U.S. from even training any unit that's involved in human rights violations or any person that uh, himself is involved in human rights violations. And so uh, even our training programs on questions of international humanitarian law have to be restricted to people that pass that, that kind of vetting standard. So we're, we're attempting to do the right thing, and, and at the same time, we're also supporting uh, prosecutions of persons like Habre or Rios Mont or, or, or former Vice Minister Montano of the, Sri of, the, of the El Salvadoran military responsible for, allegedly, for the killing of Jesuit priests. We're seeking to have him extradited to Spain to be prosecuted. Uh, so we are you know, taking action where we think it's, uh, think it's appropriate against those individuals and, and to support local efforts uh, who did cross lines that, uh, that violate international law and will continue to do so. Thank you. Um, if you put your hands very high so I can get a sense of, okay, the gentleman right here in the front row in the middle. Uh, 
thank you for coming first of all ambassador yeah. uh, i'm nesta i do security studies at ucl um alluding to the russo georgian war of 2008 considering russia is not a signatory to icc what expectations can we have if the investigation leads to some of the russian generals hypothetically speaking at the moment and secondly exactly a year ago the government of georgia they blew up the oldest gold mine and it was something of global significance and it's actually a member of ICC and so far there has been little attention paid to the event and I actually say this because you mentioned how ICC I, I um, members who are actually destroying the cultural terms in Syria and Iraq are being indicted for it so could ICC do, ICC do more to hold the Georgian government account for doing what it did a year ago? And I said government because the people are actually against it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, um, really two separate issues there. Uh, do, do keep in mind that, and, and I'm not familiar with the particular incident. You said it was attacking a, a gold, or what's... An oldest gold mine, but, but essentially architectural of, of, of archaeological significance. Um, do keep in mind that the, the ICC statute is not a human rights statute. It's not a statute about every act of bad behavior by a government. It doesn't deal with uh, all sorts of horrendous abuses that be, could, be, uh, could be prosecuted. It, it's limited to war crimes which are crimes that occur in and about an international or a civil war, a non-international armed conflict. And I don't believe we probably had that a, a year ago. Uh, it, it could include crimes against humanity, but a predicate or requirement of that is that it be part of a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population. And it excludes, for instance, acts to suppress riots or commotions or things like that. It has to be part of a, a, a major, and, and under the ICC statute, is part of a plan or policy by a government or by another, by another group. So um, you're generally going to find these war crimes in the context are these crimes in the context of a, of a, of a, of a war <laughs> or uh, some kind of major kind of uh, ethnic violence or post-election violence or something like that. And so it's not going to include everything. Now, in regard to the, to the Georgian case, and uh, uh, you know, we'll see how this proceeds with the prosecution. I mean, I've read the preliminary examinations. I've talked to Georgian officials about it. I remember talking to the prosecutor about it who said that... Uh, that he had, had received, this is former prosecutor Moreno Campo, some cooperation from the Russians describing their operations. And if you remember, the, the Russians during the course of the conflict alleged uh, that thousands of civilians in what they call South Ossetia in, 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 uh, in Gori, uh, Stalin's hometown, you know, had been killed by bombardment by uh, Georgian forces. Uh, the facts turned out to be somewhat at variance, but there was no question that some civilians were killed in, in that bombardment. But there was also then ethnic cleansing of violence against Georgian ethnic populations in order to move them out of this, this rump state area of South Ossetia. And, uh, and so the ICC has to look at both of those kinds of crimes. Now those crimes may involve, or the people they charge may be persons that live within 
the areas that we would recognize as the borders of the Republic of Georgia, including South Ossetia. And there could be South Ossetians charged for crimes against Georgians, the South Ossetians who frankly are Georgian nationals as far as international law is concerned. And South Ossetia is you know, recognized by two or three countries. So there, there could be prosecutions on both sides there without touching the Russians. Uh, who knows? I mean, I haven't studied the situation, but uh, under, I mean, there are, there's arguments. Uh, my friends in the Pentagon sometimes make them that, this, that, the, that the ICC doesn't apply to actions by non-parties, even on the territory of a party. But the ICC statute's quite explicit on that issue. And if you talk to anybody in the ICC, uh, I think clearly they understand, and, and the countries that have ratified it understand, is that if somebody comes onto your territory and commits a crime, just like if I commit a crime here in London, I'm going to be prosecuted in London, not in America. I would expect to be prosecuted according to that country's law. And if that country envisions the case going to the ICC, I could be prosecuted at the ICC if, if I could be arrested. So there, there could be prosecutions there. We'll see what, what the prosecutor finds. I, I, I think to, to some extent taking this case re represents to some extent a frustration in the progress of some national investigations. There were task forces established that were looking at them and, uh, and they haven't had as much progress as, as has been hoped. Whether there will be prosecutions or not, uh, we, we don't know. But, uh, but clearly it is a situation that, that justifies the ICC looking at it if the nationals aren't. And, and there could be prosecutions of Georgians as well as Russians uh, in it. Now, if there were an arrest warrant against a Russia that's, that's sitting in Moscow, I would expect that to be about as effective as the arrest warrant against Bashir sitting in, in Khartoum. But does that mean never? Did that mean never for, uh, uh, from Mladic uh, hiding out uh, in, in, in Serbia or moving around? Uh, uh, there could be a, a day that that individual could be could be caught, and uh, and the ICC shouldn't not prosecute someone just because they're hard to get. <laughs> if they're truly responsible, if they're the ones that bear the greatest responsibility, then that individual should be focused on. But that's going to depend upon the upon the facts. Uh, obviously, the number of deaths in this whole conflict is considerably less than than it has been in some other ICC situations. But if you talk to Georgians who are displaced. Uh, uh, they feel the passion and, and the need for, for justice in, in, in their case, and uh, we'll, we will see. But it's, uh, it's open, and it's a good thing that it's open. We have a question back here by Dr. Ainley in the blue, and then we'll come across. Thank you. Kirsten Ainley from the London School of Economics. Follows directly on from that question, actually, about power within the system and whether what we're seeing now is a two-tier system becoming embedded. So I agree with you that increasing numbers of states are vulnerable to international justice, but they're the weaker states. What I wonder if we're seeing is powerful states knowing how to work the system, knowing there are no sanctions for avoiding justice, so that actually powerful states and their allies have very little realistic chance in theory of being pressured by international justice, and almost certainly not in practice. And the, the idea that the ICC will ever get an Israeli or a Russian or an American before the court is getting probably more distant than it ever was. Would you agree that this is the case, that the, more, the most powerful states are becoming increasingly immune from justice when they want to be? And if there is a danger of that, what's the best way to go about combating it so we don't end up with a two-tier system? Yeah, now, now, do keep in mind that the, the, the ICC is designed to be a two-tier system, <laughs> even among those countries that, that ratify it. And, uh, and, and, and if, 
um, if you are a law-abiding state, we expect you to do your, you know, to be in the ICC, but never give reason for the ICC to take a case against your nationals because you'll do it yourself. And, uh, and of course, um, when you look at the ICC in Africa, uh, this, the, there are six ref, uh, situations outside the two from the Security Council. Uh, five of them were referred by the states themselves, saying, please, take it, prosecutor. And, and even in the case of, of Kenya, they, they invited the prosecutor in and, and uh, decided, rather than having a national prosecution, they would not be vague, take the case to The Hague. And so they, these countries did not uh, um, you know, have it imposed on them. They asked for it, uh, and, and in fact, it was a recognition of the difficulty of doing it in their national systems, and uh, people complain about the African situation, you know, um, it, it would, in each of these situations, there was frankly nothing happening at the national level and a real problem in doing it, and so I do, I do think that the, that, that selectivity aspect of it is, is, is a, uh, is to some extent a, a political argument that's, that's made on behalf of those that would rather not be prosecuted. Um, of course, when it comes to the other situations where, frankly, when we have countries with capacity, we'd expect it to do it themselves. We would expect commanders uh, to avoid command responsibility by by prosecuting the low-level people that step out of line, we would expect advisors to to target to to give advice about about targeting in such a way that it avoided uh, violations of, of international humanitarian law. So, in in those countries, uh, we expect the the right thing to be done. Now, what when when people raise the sort of double standard argument. Um, it's, you know, I, it, it doesn't bother me because in a way it suggests that people are saying that there needs to be a single standard. And they're, deploy, they're, they're deploying arguments to say there ought to be an investigation in this situation, that there ought to be a prosecution here. And, and this actually leads to more robust action in those countries, I think many times than would happen otherwise that this movement, uh, even though it may not have the teeth that you would dream of having if these people were, were completely under it, uh, ends up, because of the arguments that you're making, having that kind of effect as a matter of policy. And, and people within those countries demand, demand those actions on the, on the part of their militaries. Now, in, in, in a sense, you say, well, that's still not the same. <laughs> Even though they do it themselves, they're doing it themselves and they're not facing the prospect that somebody else will do it to them. But, but I do think that it helps us level the playing field. Uh, uh, at the end of the day, it's not, a, it's, it's not perfect. And uh, you know, I don't want to quote the old Russian proverb about the perfect being the enemy of the good, and then we have to debate whether what we have today is good. But I do think that it's, that it's good. And, and when I was a prosecutor, there were always people in, in the national system that said, oh, you know, why are you prosecuting me? There, there, there are people in, the, in another community that killed more people than I did or that were engaged in more things than I was. And I said, that's, that's somebody else's case. This is your case. And, and so I expect, uh, and, and at Nuremberg, we couldn't prosecute the Katyn Forest massacres by the, by, by the Russians of, 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 of the Polish middle class that was largely in the military and that was taken away and, uh, and, and assassinated uh, by, by the Russians after they occupied Eastern Poland. We couldn't do that. Did that say we shouldn't have done Nuremberg? 
We should have let uh, you know Goering and and Rippentrop and and uh, and, uh, and Brunner and others go. No, we prosecute those cases, and as a result, then people raise the issue of Katyn and, and ask and demand even seventy years, seventy-five years after the fact, justice in that case. So, so I do think there's value in pursuing this process, and and in using whatever tools we have. Uh, to level that playing field, recognizing that uh, that there will be some that are much harder to arraign before international justice, uh, but hopefully that'll be because they've done it themselves and really haven't given anything but political reasons to to bring them there. We had a question here um, from the second row from the back in the middle section here, black and white, black and white top. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Ava. I'm pursuing my master's in human rights at the London School of Economics. Um, thank you for your talk, it was extremely informative. You mentioned um, many challenges to achieving justice in the international setting. Um, in particular, um, you mentioned the veto power. So uh, my question is, what sort of changes in the structure or procedural matters in the UN would ensure greater justice? Um. That's a, uh, an, an excellent question and, and, and one on which I, uh, I'm, I'm frankly not very optimistic, but I, uh, I'm quite sympathetic to the approach taken by my uh, former boss of the State Department, of which I was a part, uh, Madeleine Albright, uh, who with the former Secretary Cohen and their, uh, in, in the report they wrote on the prevention of genocide suggested you know, a veto restraint when it comes to, to atrocity crimes. And, uh, um, the, uh, at the moment, uh, the idea of you know, convincing Russia or China to exercise veto restraint when it comes to, um, to, to say, the situation in Syria or elsewhere is, is, is a very slim one. Uh, the prospect of, of changing uh, the, the Security Council, expanding its membership, uh, uh, limiting the veto in some way is, is, is one that... Um, um, that frankly, <laughs> it's uh, one that I don't see m much hope on, and I, and I do think that the the, the major um, effort at the moment that really has to be deployed is 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 efforts to uh, um, to, to to really establish standards that when, when when you reach a particular level of, of violence, um, when you have alleged genocide, war crimes, crimes against humanity, substantial. Uh, findings by, by UN commissions, by others, uh, that in that situation one should not be blocking an investigation uh, wherever uh, is, is a rule that needs to be established as a matter of international practice and, and, and countries that, that sort of don't follow that practice uh, should be called down at, at every opportunity and of course that could include my own country. Right here in the back, the gentleman in the middle of red, green. Hi, um, my name is Dana. I'm a politics student here at SOAS. Um, you talk about how the UK and US should be setting a precedent, prosecuting their own citizens without actually needing to go to the ICC. But how would you go about actually empowering the victims of these crimes? For example, uh, a family in Iraq or Syria who's had their, um, their family members murdered by, for example, a US airstrike. How would they actually go about being able to bring this case to court, case to court. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank um, you. I mean, I'm not. Uh, keep, keep in mind that uh, in in the U.S. and, and Britain, we have uh, 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 
processes of prosecution that, that don't have explicit victim representation. It's not like in France or someplace else where you're going to have parties civil, but uh, uh, that, that actually participate as, as they can to some extent at the, at the ICC. But uh, but those there, I mean, it doesn't. It, it may sound. Uh, hollow in, in some situations, given the, the difficulty of, of, of communication, but uh, uh, through whatever forms, through whatever sort of uh, intermediate uh, victim-associated groups, they should uh, uh, should bring their complaints forward. Uh, certainly, they should be complaining to the to the International Committee of the, of the Red Cross, even though that doesn't result in criminal prosecution, but in some kind of way to resolve the issue. Uh, but uh, with, with human rights groups and victims groups, uh, they should be bringing forth their information uh, to authorities uh, and, if necessary, to the public to get, uh, to get cases uh, brought. Uh, um, it, these are frustrating cases. I was um, uh, the, um, one, of the, one of the crimes that, that concerned me during the Iraq War that I remember dealing with when and it happened several years beforehand. But I remember traveling through California at the time when certain people were on trial for the uh, the killing of civilians in Haditha in in Iraq, and uh, and that case was was prosecuted eventually at Camp Pendleton in, in California, and the, uh, um, the 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 prosecutions were not largely successful. And uh, I later met with people and said, "What's wrong? Why aren't we getting these cases made?" Now, obviously, we have cases that have succeeded, like the, like I mentioned, the, the, the Nazir Square case, even though that was actively defended and there were questions the defense raised about the, the defendant's rights in that case and whether they had disclosure. And these cases from outside the country can be very, very difficult to do in, in ways that comply with, with, with domestic uh, practice. But that was a court-martial. And, uh, and what they told me was that that particular area became basically inaccessible to them. It had been an area that had been substantially controlled by Al-Qaeda-affiliated groups. And when they, they should have investigated it contemporaneously, when they went back, uh, they, of course, they were in a situation of being viewed as a hostile enemy. They found their sort of contact and information from the victims completely cut off. And these prosecutors said they were very frustrated by that. They couldn't get the eyewitnesses that they wanted to make the case. Maybe they didn't try hard enough. But, but fundamentally, if I'm a prosecutor, I want to prosecute. I want to win my case. I want to meet those victims. I want to know their evidence. I want to corroborate their evidence. So uh, what, what can be lacking in these active conflict zones is the ability to have that communication. I'm certainly open to any way to, to make sure that it's there and that, that, that cases of certainly of intentional attacks on, on civilians, which were alleged 40 or more people killed there, um, were, uh, were, would be effectively prosecuted. They were prosecuted, but uh, uh, the results were um, um, only a few convictions and, and very small sentences for, for, for charges that didn't represent the full alleged nature of the conduct. Okay, the gentleman on the far right? Just geographically, not politically. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe so, I don't let's, know. Let's see how the question goes. Uh, Ambassador, um, can I ask for, uh, I'm a lawyer myself, um, but can I, can I ask for your um, legal assessment of 
why we are bombing ISIS. Now, is it because, A, we don't like them, that's not a legal reason, B, it's a category of preemptive self-defense, or C, is it motivated or can it be constructed as being motivated as being in some response to war crimes taking place on the territory for which we have an obligation under treaties to act. And as a rider to that, within what's going on in ISIS-held territory, is it your perception that there are acts of genocide taking place? And if there are, is there a requirement under the genocide conventions that we actively engage militarily to stop all of this and do more than simply bombing. So there's the question. I hope it's not right-wing or left-wing. Um, uh, it may help with a current situation that we read about every day in the papers. And, and, and do keep in mind that the ISIS... I, I don't want to uh, get, get into fine points of, of law and, and uh, um, been involved in part of this issue, but not, not all of it. Uh, in the, in the context, uh, keep in mind, the context in Iraq is different than it is in Syria. Uh, in, in Iraq, the, the Iraqi government, obviously a democratically elected government, we had Maliki as president, but he was defeated, and to some extent a more broad-based government now under al-Abadi, uh, you know, asks for our assistance, assistance of UK and, and, and other countries because of, of, of ISIS overrunning uh, a large part of, of, of uh, Anbar and Nineveh provinces and then even parts of what's now in, in the Kyrgyzstan regional government and, uh, and, and committing some horrible acts there. Uh, and we responded to that. Uh, particularly one of the things that, that occurred that continues to, to I think, um, be investigated, but I, but I think it's a fairly clear case, was the action of, the, of, of ISIS against the Yazidi people in the Sinjar area, where uh, if people, the Yazidi's religion is closest to Zoroastrianism, and uh, as a result of that, they, uh, with the strict view of, of, of Islam, uh, interpreted from the seventh century, uh, it's, these are not viewed as people of the book, like Christians and Jews might be, who would be entitled to live if they pay a, a tax. Uh, they basically either have to convert or die. And, and, uh, and there were several acts of major killing against, the, against this population, uh, you know, massacre and then also the capture of, of women and, and the enslavement of those women. And, and we've certainly read the, the views of leading scholars of IS about how the enslavement of those women and sex with those women is justified under other the Koran. And I've read a great many accounts of those that have managed to, to escape. And, and when President Obama engaged in bombing the ISIS forces that were besieging the last of the of, of those of the survivors on Mount Sinjar, he cited the fact that there were this appeared to be a genocidal situation. There hasn't been a legal determination of that yet, though I think, given these circumstances, it's one of the stronger cases for a genocide being found. Uh, certainly, probably the strongest case in, in this century. But uh, uh, and the genocide convention does, without saying how, enjoins every one of its parties. Uh, um, 
not every country in the world, about 140, but it's also now part of customary law to take action to prevent and punish the, the genocide. So, uh, and, and Secretary Kerry and others cited this as part of the reason for that particular bombing, uh, which may not have been as militarily significant as some of the other bombing that occurred. Uh, but, but basically what's, what's going on there in, in both, in, in uh, uh, both the, Kyrgyz, the, the Kurdish-controlled KRG areas of, of Iraq, and still part of Iraq, and in, in the other parts of the country, are coordinated efforts with the local forces uh, to, to take on ISIS that has is, that is taken over areas and is, is committing horrible acts against civilians, but is also a threat to the security of Iraq. The Syrian situation is different. Uh, we uh, were there uh, in, in, in the Syrian uh, situation. We, uh, as, as I recall, uh, took the position that because the threat uh, of, of ISIS was to a large extent emanating from Syria and El Raqqa in eastern Syria had become the capital of ISIS-controlled transnational state, uh, that actions to diminish ISIS in that region were, were actions of collective self-defense on behalf of Iraq and, and other states. And on that basis, ourselves and uh, several uh, Arab states joined in this, in this operation and, and gave notice uh, uh, to the United Nations that this was a self-defense kind of action. So uh, uh, keep in mind that one of the criticisms of our action in Syria is it's been bombing exclusively uh, ISIS targets and not the Assad regime. Obviously, if we had taken action against the Assad regime, we would not, the Assad regime is not threatening its neighbors. It's sending millions of refugees over the border, uh, but it's not threatening its neighbors. And so the same justification wouldn't apply if we were gonna take that kind of action. Um, and that was something obviously debated here after the poison gas attack, and you had a vote in Parliament that lost by a couple, uh, a couple uh, uh, votes. Uh, a decision in the United States eventually uh, uh, to negotiate rather than to attack. Uh, that would have been taken on a more humanitarian intervention basis that, uh, that it was necessary to protect uh, uh, the civilian population. And that might have been explicitly stated as it was in, in the Kosovo operation, which is, would some extent be similar to that, but, but you know, something that most people would recognize would not be legal under international law, but might, uh, as, as was said of the Kosovo operation, be a legitimate operation. Uh, not going there has, has been something that, for which the President of the United States has been accused of, of not being sufficiently robust, but, that's a, but that is a, a Rubicon that, that we haven't yet crossed and that other countries haven't crossed. Kevin Heller. Um, Kevin Heller, I'm a law professor here at SOAS. Um, so you spoke very eloquently about, in response to Kirsten's question about the United States avoiding international justice by bringing accountability to its own servicemen. And I'm just curious, the US military has a formal policy of only charging American service members with domestic crimes and not international crimes. You get charged with a violation of UCMJ and not an international crime. So the Al-Qaeda member who executes a captured American soldier is prosecuted for the war crime of murder. The American soldier who 
executes a captured member of al-Qaeda, gets prosecuted in a court-martial for murder. And as an international prosecutor who presumably believes in the symbolic value of international crimes, does it trouble you that when, in fact, American service members are prosecuted for international crimes, they're not actually charged with the international crime itself? Do you think anything is lost in that process? Well, I, I don't want to... Um, this, this whole issue of complementarity and, and what a country should do and on what basis it should do is, is one where I think, uh, again, the perfect can be the enemy of the good, to be frank. I mean, it, in, in Africa, uh, 33 countries have ratified the ICC, but at last count, only five have, have actually implemented the Rome Statute. Uh, even in Sri Lanka, in, not Sri Lanka, the other SL countries, Sierra Leone, where I was prosecuted for three years, we constantly campaigned with the parliament to, to implement in the national law crimes against humanity and war crimes, and they never did. Never could get them to take that step, even in a country where they'd been committed and where they'd joined in establishing an, an, an internationalized court with that jurisdiction. So, so quite often, you're looking at, at prosecuting what you, you can. I remember I was involved in the ICTR trying to get a case transferred to, to Norway, and the, uh, and the guy would have been charged with multiple murders, you know, infinite number of murders, and, uh, and our judges eventually said, no, you can't do it, it has to be genocide specifically. Um, that it would be good, but they hadn't changed their law. You know, eventually afterwards they did. Uh, but. It, as a general rule, if I can get, if I can get the criminal, uh, the actual crime, into court, and if I can find uh, uh, not not a dereliction of duty case or some some minor status kind of uh, case, which sometimes happens, you know, but instead a uh, a murder, uh, and I can list those victims, um, I'm as a prosecutor, I'm I'm, I'm content. Uh, Frankly, sometimes I'm content if I can find, you know, the Al Capone charge to prosecute, if, 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 if I can get it to stick. It would be better if it, if, if it, if it fit. And, and that's one of the things I was saying in the context of the U.S. Uh, uh, I mean, with the, you know, they have universal jurisdiction in a way. Anywhere in America is they can, you know, prosecute that case. I guess that's really an active personality as, 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 as well. Uh, but that they can charge it on that basis. I'd like to have our laws uh, process, uh, you know, organized in such a way that we could, uh, uh, we could use international crimes and have crimes against humanity in our law, use the war crime statute and have it reflect uh, international uh, customary laws as, as, as other countries uh, and ourselves recognize it. But uh, until that day, uh, I, I believe you find the, find the, the counts that you can and, and develop the evidence and, and, and prosecute as close as possible. And, uh, and I would find, if I were a judge of the ICC, uh, countries that actually prosecuted murder uh, and convicted those individuals and sentenced them as they would uh, uh, other kinds of murder, I would, I would, I would find that to be uh, complimentary. I wouldn't say, oh, no, 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 you've got to bring that to the international court and call it something else. We have two final questions. I'm going to take them at the same time because then we're out of time. Um, right here, and then, and then the last question in the back, and then we'll let you answer those and any final comments okay. that you have. And I noticed there are a few people that seem to want to get pictures, so maybe, I don't know, maybe you'll get a moment Thank at you. the end. Um, here you go. Thank you. My question is actually about the other SL country, about Sri Lanka. My name is Frances Harrison, and I work with a group of lawyers who document war crimes and crimes against humanity in Sri Lanka. 
I'm curious to know how optimistic you are looking forward at the accountability process in Sri Lanka, the domestic process with some international involvement that's unspecified so far, how optimistic you are that that really will deliver truth and justice, and what you think the international community can do or should do to keep up pressure on Sri Lanka to make sure that process is credible. And in the back here. Hi, um, Henry Redwood. I'm doing a PhD at King's College, and I've just finished a short stint at the ICTR as well. Um, my question is, can we continue to pursue prosecutions at an international level until we figure out what we do with defendants that are acquitted? Referring to mm -hmm. it specifically to the safe house in, in Arusha. Mm -hmm. okay. Well, um, two, two, uh, two good questions. Uh, uh, you know, and, and obviously you heard me uh, uh, giving the, uh, the glass. Is my glass half full? Let's see, maybe it's about a third full. I was giving the sort of positive story uh, that, that uh, certainly before the beginning of 2015, we had no hope of a domestic process. And, and to be frank, an, an international process, an investigation from Geneva, uh, even a more robust one than, than, than this last one, would never get us very far, and, and the chance of getting this into an international court was extremely slim. Uh, maybe some chance, and that's not eliminated, of third countries uh, uh, prosecuting if these people, if they have ties uh, to those third countries, and, and those cases are still, still very real. But, um, but the idea of getting it done at the national level was always, you know, my priority now. We recognize that, uh, and, and having been there twice, having just and, and dealt with the, the victims in, in so many other communications, and we just in Geneva two weeks ago, meeting with a group there that was concerned about the resolution that was that was coming forward, uh, extremely sympathetic uh, to to their cause. Uh, pleased that in the end we have a resolution that calls at least for a mixed court. It's not a hybrid court as the High Commissioner would recognize, but it would call for, for international participation in it. And uh, if, if you know me, I, every time you know, I come up to a situation, if you punch me, I say mixed court. You know, that's, that's the, the, in my view, almost always <laughs> necessary in these situations where the victimized group is not going to trust the local authorities for, for good reason and, uh, and where, um, you know, you, uh, the, 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 the judiciary may have a real challenge in terms of the law and the practice and everything else, bringing internationals in can, can contribute. I think that can be positive. The, the key will be how those individuals are selected. <laughs> if, if, if people are selected from countries that have no tradition of human rights or prosecutions of, of, of these kind of violators, uh, the international judges could be weaker than the domestic ones. <laughs> you know? And so uh, clearly this has to be a process that develops out of consultation with, with, with all of, of, of the communities. And of course the, 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 case, the judges in these cases should naturally rep represent the communities of, 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 uh, of Sri Lanka, Sinhala, Muslim, uh, Tamil, uh, and, uh, and, but then uh, uh, additional confidence from having internationals. I do think it's important to, to keep up the pressure. Uh, the High Commissioner will be in a situation to continue to, uh, to, to report back on what's happening under this resolution that was enacted. Uh, um, I lose track of time when I travel, but it was last week. And, uh, and, and I think that's essential to have that, that pressure. And, and I do think that, of course, there were other factors that led to the Rajapaksa's defeat. Uh, they're sort of overreaching. 
um, the alleged corruption, uh, you know, the way in which they made all these projects with the Chinese under under uh, under terms that may not be in the country's uh, economic or, or, or future interests, I think all contributed to rejection. You know, eliminating, impeaching uh, the chief of the Supreme Court, who was a Sinhala person, uh, I think weakened them. Uh, and but. Combined with that was the idea that they were being isolated internationally. And so I think that that concern about the international community wanting to be recognized as, uh, as uh, you know, the, one of the oldest democracies uh, in, 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 in Asia uh, is, is, is really important. And so I, and I, I do think that we can continue to exercise leverage in that situation and believe that we should. On the, uh, on the acquitted and... In Arusha question, um, obviously something that, I mean, just to make sure people understand the, the issue, um, the, uh, the, those charged in, in Arusha, with the exception of, of George Ruju, Belgian-Italian, were all Rwandan. Uh, in the case of the ICTY, the Yugoslavia Tribunal, when those individuals, are, when individuals there are acquitted, or when they finish their sentences, they go home to Yugoslavia and they generally find a place where they're happy to go. So they don't seek a place in a third country. Those that are acquitted at the Rwanda Tribunal do not want to spend a minute in Kagame's Rwanda. And so the natural avenue of going home is not one that they, they would accept. And so the question is, uh, can we get a third country uh, to accept them? And as, and as you know, in the case of, uh, oh, I, I have to see the exact numbers, but of the dozen or so acquitted, uh, four or five have been, have, have been, it's been possible to find countries that would accept them. Uh, you know, the, those efforts have to continue, but, uh, uh, and, and of course, whether the Rwanda Tribunal will do any more is, is not certain. Uh, the Rwanda Tribunal has tried 83 of the 92 people that it's charged. It awaits only the final appeals judgment and the Batari judgment involving six accused that we hope will be delivered in December. Uh, there are, of course, three major fugitives and six others whose cases have been transferred to Rwanda. And, uh, uh, but efforts to bring them to, bo to book, and I spent a lot of effort on this in the course of the last five years, have not been su successful to date. So whether there are any more people, I don't know. But if, if Kabuga or Mparanya or Bizumana turned up tomorrow, I do think they need to be prosecuted and we need to deal with that issue of the acquitted people separately and, and certainly put an effort uh, into making sure that they can go someplace safe to spend the rest of their life. More complicated is the convicted and sentence completion cases because, of course, uh, to the extent countries take somebody who's acquitted, they may suffer some taint by having been charged, but that's not legitimate. They should be viewed as innocent people. But for those that have actually been convicted of genocide, which almost everybody has uh, who's been convicted, uh, those individuals may find themselves disqualified from admission to any country. I mean, they're excluded from the Refugee Convention. And so that is a, is a major challenge. And uh, those that have gone to, been imprisoned in other countries, in Mali, for instance, uh, have ended up being released in Mali uh, and are being provided with assistance there because no other country will take them. So uh, it, is a, it is a loose end that uh, is out there, but it's, uh, 
it's again part of the challenge I talked about earlier that uh, this is not Nuremberg. <laughs> this, is a, this is a situation where these tribunals at the end do not have power that goes beyond their, uh, their, their offices. Uh, they have to reach out to states to get this kind of assistance and, uh, and finding a place for these acquitted people and those that have finished their sentences remains part of the reason why we now have a mechanism uh, to finish the work of these tribunals because it, it doesn't end. These are human beings and we have to deal with them humanely and appropriately. So anyway, that's the, that's the end of those questions. I want to thank everybody for challenging questions and for, uh, for this opportunity to speak to you tonight. And uh, I, I hope I, I delivered some of the both, both passion and, uh, and reason uh, you know, on, on this question of, of justice. Uh, uh, but it is um, something that requires both. Uh, and, uh, and, and because in particular of, of the obstacles to, to, to investigating and, and trying fairly individuals who've committed the worst crimes. Uh, you know, I certainly encourage those that, uh, that uh, are inclined in that direction to, to look forward to helping make this project a, a success so that the, the worst crimes known to humankind uh, will, uh, will face justice. Thank, Thank you. you, Ambassador Rapp. That was absolutely terrific. <laughs>